I think I'm having an art attack. Welcome to another episode of Art Attack with your host, Lizzie Dastin, art historian. This is no bullshit. She's a real art history professor. And myself, full of bullshit, an artist, Justin Bua. <laughs> That's what artists are, full of bullshit, which is a great lead-in to the artist that we want to talk about today, the most kitsch uh, artist of today and probably one of, if not the most successful and well-known artist today and of all time, Jeff Koons. Boom. Is that my lead-in? That was your lead-in. Yeah, and I just snapped my fingers and pointed, <laughs> and pointed at you. It's Take my Take it from there. Give us, drop some bombs of knowledge. Uh, I will. So he's definitely vilified in the art world. People hate him. And I think that before I reclaim some positive aspects of his career, I think we should talk first of all about why people hate him. And I'm in this camp too. When I taught my first contemporary art class, I with deep sadness, realized that I had to include Coons in my lectures. How do you talk about art from 1975 onwards and not incorporate his practice? And then I thought, well, it isn't fair for me to show an artist and say, I hate his stuff. And I'm pretty transparent even when I don't want to be. And so I knew that it would read like I hated this guy. So I thought, all right, my job is to uncover something that gives him humanity, something that I could hold on to and I could share with my students. So I found that at some point, but let's grow into that. Why do we all hate Jeff Koons? Well, I don't think that that's not fair. Clearly, we don't all hate him. I mean, this is we hate as a culture anybody who's successful. We do. We love to vilify, like you said, we love to build up and we love to break them down. If you're king of the hill, what's the goal? to knock the person off the king of the hill so that you can be king of the hill. So I think that also when you are hated, and I'll take this a page out of my own book when I was host and executive producer of my TV show, Street Art Throwdown, people love to talk shit. People love to hate. And when they're haters, you're doing good. And so I think being hated on is also a measure of success to a certain degree. So love him or hate him he is a polarizing artistic figure and artist, right? There's a difference. One is the artist, the creator, the guy who explores through a visual kaleidoscope his interpretations of art, sculpture, paintings, and all of his other whatever it is, <laughs> his Jeff Koonsian things. And then the other is just the figure of somebody that he's become. A guy who's selling you know, at $55 million at Christie's a guy who has a multi-dimensional, intercontinental, that's a line from the Beastie Boys, I'm intercontinental when I'm eating French toast, boom. But <laughs> he's got this incredible atelier of people that create for him. So it's easy for people to hate him. And I think Pharrell said it too. It's like, you know, Pharrell loves him, Pharrell the rapper, that's what I'm talking about because you're looking at me like, for no, real? no, okay, cool. I, I, no, know you who were, I was like, is. I want to make sure Lizzie knows <laughs> I didn't the hip hop shit. Beastie Boy reference. Make sure you know. Did you get the Beastie Boy reference? <laughs> no. I'm in a continental <laughs> when I'm eating French toast. Okay, so Pharrell, people love him. People love him. Quick story. When I was, I'm from New York City and my uncle used to rent out this 
shickety shack in East Hampton, which is the wealthiest, the, the most affluent people in New York and East Hampton. And I used to ride my bike with him. We'd do on these like triathlon journeys. And I would run by these mega mansions, like these Spielbergs and, and Ralph Lipschitz, you know, Ralph Lauren. Yeah. Real, real name is Lipschitz. I did okay, know that. Cool. Yeah. Self-hating. But um, I, would, <laughs> I would run by or bike by and I would see these giant, you know, sculptures. And I was like, told me, that was the first time I ever knew who he was. And I'd ask my uncle, like, who is that dude? He's like, oh, that's Jeff Koons. Everybody has one. Everybody. <laughs> like, there was these giant, you know, balloon animal sculptures, and, and everybody had one. So I think that, I think he's, I think I don't agree with you that everybody hates him. I think clearly a lot of people, the Gagosians of the world, they love him. Well, I think they love him because he is incredibly accessible and because we know that he's going to fetch a ton of money at auction. But I do think that he's kind of the frenemy of the art world. Mm. And hate may be small or maybe too myopic of a word or too short-sighted. I think that people are afraid of him. Mm. And let's just outline some of his famous works or the iconic works in case our our viewers or listeners aren't familiar with him. So he started out doing a series of basketballs suspended in a case, um, a clear case with water. And so you could see the basketballs half submerged in the water. He also did similar things with vacuum cleaners that were displayed with some kind of fluorescent lighting. He is known, best known for the big celebration series, the simulations of balloons, but in a very large scale, typically. He does sculptures like Michael Jackson and the chimpanzee bubbles. So you mentioned the word kitsch. He does a lot of things that are kitsch. And I think that's one of the inroads into understanding why people don't love him because they just think that it's Andy Warhol derivative. But also like when he responds, he hates the word kitsch. Yes, he does. Like he just doesn't like that. And he doesn't feel like that is who he is. But I really think it is kitsch. Yeah, I actually think it's kitsch too, but I don't think that kitsch is a diminishing term Mm -hmm. at all. I think that the collapse between high and low that Andy Warhol began in the 60s is genius. And I really think that Coons adds another dimension to that because for him, there's such a conversation about class and taste and taste that's questionable that he makes viewers look at in kind of an uncomfortable way because all of the objects that he references when he does these balloons, when he does the basketballs, they're these integers of an economic experience that is lower to middle class. And that is not common for the art world. We're used to really precious high objects And even when Warhol was referencing consumerism, it was still within a pretty much elitist consumer space. But Coons, and we'll go back to the basketball as a reference, that to me is referencing a culture that is often overlooked in mainstream art. And I think that with the basketball specifically, that speaks to the the hope of upward mobility economically mm-hmm. for a lot of low-income African-American families who see basketball as their way out. Yeah, a lot of motherfuckers out there are like, damn, this this girl is definitely reading into this. But <laughs> hey, it, hey, you know what? But though that's that's what art is really about. You know, art is art is really about in, just interpreting it in, in in different and sundry ways. But 
you know, you look at his uh, giant balloon animals that are, and he, and he uses all these shiny materials, you know, it's not, it's, it's actual steel, right? He's constructing from steel, which is very like, you know, the proletariat material. And he's referencing that, or at least he says he is. And you're looking into these balloon animals and you're looking at your own reflection, which is what he loves. It's people are experiencing the objects, but also experiencing themselves within the objects. And it goes and goes and goes. It's almost like a Descartian, you know, dream within a dream within a dream within a dream. It becomes surrealistic and Magritte-ish in that capacity. But I think when it all boils down to his art, it, it is kitsch, much like the artist Mark Ryden, much like many artists... Uh, today who have kind of taken a page out of Jeff's book and have become very kitsch in their subject matter and in their application. My personal issue, once again, with Coons, much like my issue with Kehinde Wiley and with other artists, contemporary artists, I have a personal discomfort with people who have ateliers where they're just going around and directing everybody. There's no fucking way no disrespect to Coons, because there's some shit that I do like, and I use the word shit openly, but there's there's definitely, it's annoying when you've got two, you know, two women at the atelier painting his painting because they have the skill set to paint that. They're trained Italian craftsmen, artists. Jeff can't do that. So what what does that say? I mean, I know we're getting into the process we're getting a little out of the uh, of a, into a different area, but does that not? I mean, I'm asking you this personally, like because people want to know out there. No, Jeff Koons does not create his own stuff. Okay, let's get that straight. He does not create his own stuff. He has people create his own stuff. Are you okay with that or not? That's fine. Wait, Peter Paul Rubens didn't create some of his own stuff too. He had the guy who painted the lion. He had the guy who painted landscape. He had the guy who painted the figure, but that motherfucker could do. It. Everything. He was an absolute straight G. And on top of that, <laughs> he taught in the spirit of the Renaissance artist. He taught his children how to work. He was a great master teacher. All right. So I have a lot of things to say about this. First of all, Coons was well-versed in art history and also in the process of creating. When he was very young, he would simulate and copy works of old masters and sell them to make a little bit of money. He also worked behind the front desk at MoMA. That's and right. so he has a lot of things that he's absorbing. So to say that he wasn't able to do something or isn't able to just because he chooses not to, I don't know if that's necessarily correct. And to your question on, to sculpt on that level though. Well, I don't care. I don't care that but he that, has an okay, atelier. Okay, so that, then now we're getting somewhere. I know, there, it's a two-pronged argument. Right, First so of all, I think care. he can make. Second of all, I don't care because of his transparency. To me, that That's is like. his inroad yeah. into safety, is that he is 100% transparent yeah, he is. with the fact that he has a host of people helping him. He doesn't like the term factory because I think that too intimately connects him with... Warhol. With Warhol, exactly. But... A designer, because you mentioned Italy and designers, mm -hmm. designers don't physically stitch their handbags because That's they true. conceptualize the design of it. And Coons, to me, is 100% the author of all of his works because he's the one who is envisioning the concept behind it. And so to me, who actually fabricates doesn't matter. We talk about Coons as being a legacy of Duchamp, 
And I think that's completely true because of his use of the found objects like the basketball, like the vacuum cleaners. But I think more to this point, he is the legacy of minimalists like Donald Judd or people uh, like, well, now, of course, I can only think of Donald Judd, but he is a good example because he wanted to distance his hand from all of the objects that he produced under his name. So he would call up fabricators and say, this is what I want the piece to look like. This is what I want it to be made from. Have at it. And on the museum label, it says that it's authored by Donald Judd, but he physically didn't touch anything. He just envisioned what he wanted it to be. And his whole practice, part of the conceptual strain, is to physically remove his fingertips, his the impression of his body from the work. And so I think Judd is in line with that tradition. And it's not something that I vilify him for. It's actually something that I support and I really like. So what do you vilify him for? Well, because I was you, the, because you don't, right, right, right. Yeah, because you you don't care about the process, which I, I understand. That for me, that's important as a painter. I like to get my DNA and the materials and the canvas, and I feel like that's a great. It's great for me to know, like when I look at a Rembrandt, that that Rembrandt at one point was in front of that painting and he was painting it. Oh my God! I think about the stories and his moods and you know his his fingers touching the paint and him getting sick because he's getting toxic poisoning no i'm kidding i don't know what was happening <laughs> but the point but my point is that he there's something very romantic and uh, explorational and fantastic about just your interaction with with the canvas or the sculpture the same thing with rodin you know what i mean like the way just thinking about him chiseling that or michelangelo is just uh, it feels really powerful i understand that you don't care about the process. I care about the process. That's fine. We have diverging opinions. But why do you hate him so much? Well, I will add a caveat to that. I did really hate him because I didn't understand him. And then in okay. investigating what his intent was, that's really what humanized him for me and specifically with the Celebration Series. So let me tell you what I like about the Celebration Series. Okay. But I guess to go to your question, it felt like he was exploitative. Also, I didn't really love his porn series. Mm -hmm. There's a whole series of sculptures and also paintings. Yeah. He'd blow job ice. Yeah. And that just seemed a little bit unnecessary. Seems like... It seemed like very Vegasy too, you know. It wasn't yeah, it totally. wasn't just like pornographic, but it just feels sometimes a little bit like just Vegas and a provocation. Hard just, Rock Cafe, almost. Yeah, it did. Like the Planet Hollywood of art. It just felt like he was being inflammatory just for an exercise. Like, ooh, a blowjob in a museum. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I didn't really connect with that project, and it was so gaudy. much. <laughs> it was. It was. So that's initially why garish. I didn't like him. So it is very garish. And the Celebration series is actually my favorite. I think it's really poignant, really poetic. And you mentioned the $55 million sale at Christie's. Mm -hmm. So he actually sold one of his balloon dogs for $56 million, which is the largest sum that any contemporary artist had fetched at auction. I'm not sure whether that record has since been dismantled, but I mean, that's a lot of money for a contemporary artist. Mm -hmm. So the celebration series, really stunning because Coons is referencing a balloon, which typically is very small in scale, very delicate, and yet he is simulating it with durable materials. So he makes it seem like it's something that's very delicate when in fact it's going to outlive us all. 
and it's on a gigantic scale. And I think a balloon is almost a metaphor for us because we inflate ourselves with oxygen. That's how we survive. That's how we live. But there's also that supposition or that knowledge that eventually that's not going to happen anymore. And when we deflate, that references our death. And so Coons, when he creates these visions of inflatables, it's almost like he that's a, a figure, a body, but it's one that's immortalized. So I like that conceptual aspect, but then the personal that I really connect to is this. He was with a woman, a porn star from Italy, and mm-hmm. they had a kid, and the relationship went downhill, and she ended up moving to Italy with the child. And because of some kind of international law, he was not able to see his son or spend time with him. And so these balloons, they reference a celebration and birthdays and really happy moments with his son that he didn't actually experience himself. So I think that's why they're so big because they reference the scale of his loss and his longing. Just because you're bringing up personal stuff about him, I think that we do have to discuss how weird that dude is. I mean, just straight like, (laughs) he feels kind of like, archetypally creepy. You know what I mean? When you think of like, you're defining creepy in the dictionary, you would see a picture of Jeff Coons. You know what I mean? Isn't it funny that whenever we say creepy, we only are referencing men. I don't think I've ever heard. Yeah. White men too. Only white men. Uh, no, maybe you don't maybe think about white Dominican men. motherfuckers as creepy. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I mean, don't I don't, I don't know why I always think of like the white dude with the turtleneck, who with the short hair who talks really quietly yeah who's who's (laughs) who's crossing his legs with his hand on his knee who looks like jeff coons like to me when i think about him and when he talks he is just so creepy and very soft-spoken but it's funny that we never call women creepy no women aren't creepy men are creepy and disgusting (laughs) god i I love this conversation (laughs) oh my god (laughs) but yeah he is a lot more reserved and introverted than you would think considering the work he's articulate you know he's he's a good speaker uh he knows his shit He's a hard ass worker. Like anytime I and I've never met the guy. I only have access through videos and and radio, radio interviews or TV shows. But I've always felt like you know he's well spoken. Every time I never like his work, and then I hear him speak, and I go, huh? I have that like, huh? You know where I'm just <laughs> like, do I maybe I do like it, huh? Because he's smart and he's he's interesting, uh, but definitely without a doubt the creepiest dude. I've ever seen in terms of what he looks like. Now, but not, looks are deceiving. You don't judge a book by its cover. I'm sure he's not at all. But I just thought that that was an interesting... A salient point. Thank you for bringing that up. You're very welcome. That's what I do. I bring up salient visual points. So what do you think about the whole concept of a balloon being a metaphor for our bodies and then this other personal idea of his son and the lost childhood that he wasn't able to experience? I think, once again, everybody is going to read in or go along with people's extracurricular ideas or definitions about their work. And I think that is the great problem and truth of modern art. I feel like you you could take anything and make it into something it's not. Was it designed intentionally for that? Maybe. That's Who great. cares? Who cares? It doesn't even matter. And the story obviously gives gravity to the actual balloon. It's a fucking balloon. It's a party balloon. 
Seriously? It's a party balloon. I saw this dude at Farmer's Market blowing up balloons the other day. That I was like, dude, that's a Jeff Koons right there. I get it. He makes it out of steel. I get it. It's reflective. I get it. You could look at yourself in there. You could see your own soul in the work. <laughs> and it's a middle-class object, typically, that is tethered to yes, it's made celebratory out of steel. experiences. It's the proletariat material. In an elitist, precious space. Absolutely. That's a cool thing. And it could be at the Macy's Parade. <laughs> that would be Wearing really ropes. difficult to do. <laughs> no, I'm it saying it could, it could be at the balloon parade. I mean, look, do... The bottom line is, do I consider Jeff Koons a great artist? No, I don't. That's not my style. And it's, I understand in the trajectory of art history, in the canon of this great movement of art history that Lizzie Daston and Justin Bua are all a part of, and all these other great fucking artists out there, is he one of the greatest artists? In the universe to me, no. So then why do you think that so many people really embrace him? Why is he in every single collection of every single museum? So why is Jeff Koons important? I don't think he's important. Why is he in all these museums and collections? Because people have stocks. When you have a stock, you want to support your stock. When you have value in, in, in a property, you want to elevate it and make sure that it doesn't lose value. I think that's the real reason. I think at the end of the day... There's a lot of the same artists that are always on the selling block, right, all the time in the auction houses. Well, why is that? People out of a vested interest in this person. Why did they choose that person to support? Because everybody at one point or another, whether they love it or hate it, it's still a stock to them. If, if I owned a Jeff Koons, I'd have a lot of money in my, in my bank account. Does that make sense? So I wouldn't want my value for that painting or sculpture to go down. I'm going to always support that. Whether they really love it or not, I can't tell you that. But I can tell you that there's definitely some people out there in the market that don't love what they buy, but they buy it as blue chip. Absolutely. It's the Saatchi model. And I think that you do accurately describe some of the undercurrents of these motivations. Why collect certain artists? I do think that on the surface and for the consumer of art itself, there is another reason, and that's the accessibility of his motifs. I think people love work that they can relate to. And if they see an inflatable balloon that reminds them of summers spent in the pool, or if they see a Michael Jackson sculpture, or if they see something that they know, yeah. then they can feel like they are a part of the experience in a way that art often makes us feel separate from. I get it. I see a giant ivy cut dog you know, that's a foot and a half, uh, uh, you know, two stories tall, and it's cool. But once again, I don't put it in the category of art per se. I feel like that's good lawn art, but you know <laughs> what I mean? But y y we're talking about, you know, multi millions of dollars, and there's lawn artists who could do that that well for, you know, 7,000 bucks. <laughs> Perhaps, but then they would be fabricators. <laughs> I'm just giving you the proletariat <laughs> viewpoint right now. He might be saying he's creating with materials of the common man, oh, but the burn. reality <laughs> is a lot different out there. And you do actually expose the hypocrisy because he is relying on a proletariat experience, but he is presenting it for upper class and eyes. spending a fortune, spending 
poodles and oodles of cash money to get these things done. He really is. <laughs> poodles of cash. I love that. I've of never, course he is. never heard poodles that. Poodles of cash. <laughs> so he, you know, at the end of the day, he's already written into the art history books. Jansen, Gardner, you name it. He's there. He is important. We've already deemed him important. Even though you might teach about him and you might vilify him, at the end of the day, people consider him an important artist. And I do too. And I think that he is adding something really valuable to this conversation of pre made fabricated objects mm -hmm. and pre-digested imagery. And I wonder if we would think about him differently if he demographically came from the communities that he touts or utilizes in his art. Well, he's from Pennsylvania, and then I think in 73 he came to New York. So I think he had that early New York's, New York City experience. I don't think he had the hardcore real New York experience that, no. that I had. You know, growing up in in the hood in New York, but I definitely think that it, anywhere in the '70s in New York was pretty nasty. So I definitely know that he was around that kind of culture. Sure, but also he's a white man, and he was a banker for some time, yeah. and so he took a redirection that a lot of people who are non-white and from low-income communities are never given access to. So I just wonder if these kinds of questions might be ameliorated if he weren't white and you know didn't have all of these sets of of lived experiences but to me ultimately my bottom line about Coons is that he presents us like that shiny surface of his balloons he presents us with a surface in which we can have these debates in which we can see ourselves and I think that that is powerful. I love the fact that he is referencing low culture or something that the art world has classified as low and then putting it in a place like MoMA. And I love that he constructs something that is weightless with incredibly heavy materials. And that's both the physicality of the materials that he picks and also the, the heaviness of the reference that it has in his own life. The bottom line is, you and I just did a whole podcast about this dad, about this guy. <laughs> so he wins. You know, at the end of the day, people are talking about him, people are writing about him, people are making movies about him, people are making art about him, and he's winning. And we just did this whole thing as really a tribute to him. At the end of the day, we're talking about him. Peace. <laughs>